Good afternoon. I am Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania, and this is Wednesday's edition of Bible Quest. We have both uh, Chase Byers in Fishers, Indiana, and Joe Works in Elmira, New York, here today. So, guys, we've got the full compliment. Well, thank you for that compliment. Uh, good to be with you all again. Sorry I missed being with you last week. We're going to be uh, picking up our study of the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Joe, uh, Chase, I'm going to throw on screen a map here real quickly uh, just to yeah. kind of orient everybody geographically. And so I assume you guys can see my map at this point? Yes. Yep, we can see it. So back in the beginning of chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas left Antioch here. They came to the island of Cyprus here and Salamis about here and then Paphos here on the western end. And that's where we're going to pick up the reading in verse 13. They set sail from Paphos, and they're going to come up here to Perga, which is right up in this area here. And then they're going to very quickly come up to Antioch of Pisidia. So this over here is Antioch of Syria, and they're going to come to Antioch of Pisidia. And I don't know what your thinking is, guys. I think I probably know. My, my understanding is that when Paul writes the letter to the Galatians, he is writing to the Christians in these cities here. Where's my cursor? In Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Is uh, is that your I thought? Agree. Yeah, you've I got agree. the word Galatia there on your map, and so that's what Southern Galatia is the way we typically refer to that. And uh, I think it's really helpful then to read Galatians, having in mind the things that are taking place in these chapters. All right. Um, aside from any. Uh, programming notes that may or may not be showing up. Uh, let's get into the text. <laughs> no, actually, we've got a programming note, don't we? We, we do. We, we need to uh, encourage people to make comments if they would like. And so uh, in whatever format that you are watching this, if you want to submit any comments uh, or questions, uh, that's always helpful for us, whether they are in agreement or in disagreement. We really, do want, we, we really do want to hear from you all, but I tell you what, we're supposed to be doing this in a very professional manner, and Drew has worked hard. To, Joe says no. Drew's worked hard to make <laughs> – Drew is behind the scenes showing us a little chalkboard, and, and it says, remind people to comment on YouTube, and I'm not supposed to read that. I'm just supposed to remind you to comment on YouTube, and uh, – I'm sure I'm aggravating Drew right now. <laughs> but anyway, we would appreciate hey, it if you all can give us some feedback, if you have some questions, some things, especially things that we're talking about. If you have something in the text you'd like to ask about, uh, that'd be great. So with that, let's start in to Acts chapter 13. How about I read verses 13 through 16, and then we um, we talk a little bit about that part, okay? Yeah. That sounds good. I want to do just one little thing here on the beginning, because I think this is something I had not really thought through a lot. And you guys give me pushback. But as we think through Paul's preaching trips, where has he been so far? When he got into Damascus, he was doing some preaching there. Then he went back to Jerusalem and was doing some preaching there. And then he's in Antioch doing some preaching there. Does that pretty well sum up where he's been as a preacher so far? Well, okay, the, the, to, to, I'm not sure I entirely understand the chronology, but in Galatians 1.17, he does talk about going away into Arabia and then returning to Damascus and how that fits in here. That's a little bit of a difficulty. 
but but regardless the mm -hmm. amount of traveling that paul is about to go on as a gospel preacher it looks like is going to be new to him i mean he had been traveling before as he was persecuting the christians yep. but now he's going on preaching trips to go about preaching so i i just like to set that up to say that paul is embarking on something very new to him at this point and it's really cool to watch the way that the lord looks out for paul as he goes on these various preaching trips so just a bit of a note there to say Paul's embarking on something kind of new for him, and it's exciting to watch it. Chapter 13, verse 13. Now, Paul and his company set sail from Paphos. So that's the island on the western end of Cyprus, the island. And he came to Perga in Pamphylia. They came to Perga in Pamphylia. So they'd be on the southern coast of what would be modern-day Turkey. And um, they came to Antioch of Pisidia. So they make their way inland, <clears throat> north. And they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And so Paul stood up and beckoning with the hand said, Men of Israel and you that fear God, hearken or listen up. So let's uh, just any comments on that first little section. Anything you want to spend time on? Well, this is just going to be a uh the the way that he's going to operate going into a city if there's a synagogue he's going to look for jews um who have familiarity with the old law the coming of christ they were looking for the messiah and so there's almost just a uh, there, there would seem to be an open door for somebody of paul's caliber to go in and as it says here he's, he's welcomed you know to to speak up yeah, I, I think yeah. it's interesting. I'm not sure what it was about Paul, but it seems there was something about Paul that people recognized. He is somebody who might have something to say. Uh, I don't know what the rules were for, you know, whom they invited to speak. Uh, I, oh, I, he was wearing a tie. <laughs> I think I think that's it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Or, or well, in or any event, tag. on on or, another on another level, um, I it's it's interesting how often. People, uh, people who maybe been Christians for years and read the Bible, they they haven't got a clear distinction in their mind between temple and synagogue. Um, and today, in, in our world, those terms almost seem to be get used interchangeably in Jewish communities. I'm I'm going to temple and going to synagogue, but in the Bible, the temple, the Jewish temple, was in Jerusalem. Solomon built the first one. It was destroyed by the Babylonians. It was rebuilt about 500 and some odd years before Jesus and then greatly uh, enlarged by Herod. And that's what is existing in Jesus' day is the one temple in Jerusalem. And that's where they offered animal sacrifices and all of that sort of thing. Synagogues, Jews had been scattered all over the world. And wherever they were, if they had enough Jewish people there, they would establish a synagogue and it was a focal point of Jewish worship, but it wasn't where they would come to offer sacrifices. It's what you see here. They would come together and have the reading of the law and the prophets, and that's what's going on here. Anything else you guys yes. want to notice there? Uh, one of the things Scott Smelser, some of you guys know him from the Tuesday edition, pointed out to me that it's helpful to note chapter 13 as what might have been Paul's staple synagogue sermon, because Previously, it had mentioned Paul going in and talking about Jesus is the Christ and the Messiah. And it kind of makes us ask, I wonder what kind of things he was saying to make that case to a Jewish audience. And 
after chapter 13, he's going to spend a lot of time and Luke isn't going to slow down and tell us everything Paul says in the synagogues. And it might be because chapter 13 is a good outline of what that synagogue sermon looks like. Last thing I want to mention is just the contrast. Uh, Paul had gotten letters to go into the synagogues in Damascus to seek those who are of the way to arrest them and haul them back to Jerusalem. Here he goes into the synagogues and he preaches Jesus. And so let's pick it up in verse 17. Joe, you want to read a little bit? The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From, let's stop there. Keep yeah, going. let's stop there. It, it, uh, he, he starts in with this brief history of, of the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt. Um, and he really covers a lot of ground fairly quickly. It's, it's, it's as if he wants to get to David. Let's just go back our beginning and come to David. Uh, and he's going to pick up here with David and then develop the idea uh, of a man from David's line who, who he's going to talk about. That's all I wanted to notice there. So, you know, we, when we talked about Stephen's sermon uh, back in chapter seven, we noted that, you know, any 12 year old Jewish boy would have uh, known those details. But the way that Stephen works them together to this great point that they were acting the same way, I think, is, is pretty powerful. Right. Could there be something like that here? You know, he lists what uh, three kind of major events, right? The, the coming out of Egypt, the time period of the judges, and then the time of Saul before he gets to David. Mm -hmm. What do those three things have in common? They're, 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 they're times of rebellion, times of people ignoring. You know, Saul, the son of Kish, doesn't listen to God. The time period of the judges. And then the coming out of Egypt, he even says it, you know, God put up with them. You know, uh, that, you know, you, you can just sort of see the, the kind of like, these are not the 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 great pinnacles of Old Testament time. Um, then you have the contrast, a man uh, after God's own heart. Exactly. Al yeah. Almost like that this is what it was all building to. This is what it was all anticipating toward. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're going to see him make a point about a descendant of David that's similar. And so then what are these Jews going to do? Are they going to act like the first generation uh, uh, escapees from Egypt or the judges or Saul, or are they going to follow the son of David, Jesus Christ? Okay, let's uh, start in verse 23. And I'll tell you what, let's go down through verse 28. Okay. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming, the, bapt the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I'm not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandal straps of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. 
men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those who among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent for those who dwell in Jerusalem, for their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voice of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Okay. Um, I, as you're reading through that, verse 23, of this man's seed, of David's seed, God, according to the promise, brought unto Israel a Savior, Jesus, who, whose name means uh, God is salvation or God saves, Yahweh saves, a Savior. And then you come down to verse 26, at the end of the verse, to us is the word of this salvation sent forth. Um, he, he mentions John the Baptist, who had anticipated Jesus coming and his work. Um, and then he comes very quickly to the rejection of, of Jesus as, as the Christ. What other things should we notice in that section there? No, I think all, that's, that's great observation. To, uh, uh, it's going to lead him to, to where he's headed in, in the conclusion of this. All right, so I'll pick it up in verse 29. And when they had fulfilled all things that were written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen for many days of them that came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses unto the people. And we bring you good tidings of the promise God made unto the fathers, that God has fulfilled the same unto our children, in that he raised up Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he is spoken on this, way, this wise, I'll give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Because he also says in another psalm, you will not give thy holy one to see corruption. Um, I'm going to stop in the middle of a thought there, but let's stop there and go back through what we've just read, starting back at verse 29. One of the things that jumps out at me again, central to the preaching gospel throughout the book of Acts, the resurrection, that, that it's all based on the claim of resurrection. And to me, that is so fundamental. People today, how can we know, how can we really believe that Jesus was real or that he came from God or this is not all just a myth or just fables? This whole thing, the spread of the gospel, the establishment of the church of Jesus Christ was predicated on the claim that a man recently killed, and, and now we're a little bit further along in time, but recently, relatively speaking, killed, uh, was alive. Had, had come back from the dead, and that there were many witnesses. Um, and, and yet, based on that claim, it spread because people found it a credible claim at that time. And uh, that, that, I think, is evidence in and of itself for us uh, that this, this really happened. It's not easy to convince people somebody raised from the dead. It's certainly not easy to build an entire religion that will spread throughout the whole world based on that claim when there's active opposition to that claim and yet the people opposing it cannot refute it well and what's also amazing you, you just talk about how important this evidence is although paul is going to talk to multiple different audiences in the book of acts that's where he ultimately concludes every time uh, not just here with the jews but also with the gentiles in Acts 17 on the sermon on mars hill that's what this is all culminating toward 
And that's also why one of the things Jesus required, if we remember back in chapter one, or what the apostles required for someone to be an apostle is to be a witness of the resurrected Christ, because this was everything. Uh, this is what it all hinged on, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. And notice that he doesn't just say he was raised from the dead. He says there were witnesses. But he doesn't just say there were witnesses. He says he was seen, this is verse 31, he was seen for many days of them that came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses unto the people. So it wasn't a fleeting glimpse, an ephemeral thing. It was, he was, and of course, in the, in the first chapter of the book of Acts, Luke told us he was with his disciples for 40 days after he was raised from the dead. All right. Uh, what else do you want to notice? There's a couple of other things that are interesting to me in this text. So does, maybe... the, does the language seem odd? Um, you know, maybe we've just become so familiar with it. I don't know if we've forgotten about it or not, but the, the quoting of the second Psalm, uh, you are my son today. I've begotten you. Um, I think reading that out of context of Psalm two, particularly reading it out of context of Hebrews, I would be thinking that this is talking about the virgin birth. So um, one of the things that's interesting, and I, I was actually going to ask you guys about this, what you think about this. One of the things that's interesting is because he quotes the second Psalm and he says in that he raised up Jesus and he, he says that's what the second Psalm is talking about when it says thou art my son this day I've begotten you. And then in verse 34 he begins and as concerning that he raised him up from the dead now no more to see corruption. Then he quotes the 16th Psalm. So there are a couple ways to read that. One way is in verse 34. Oh and also concerning his resurrection from the dead as if that's not what I was talking about in connection with Psalm 2 but I'm going to talk about it from Psalm 16 or the other way to read it is Psalm, uh, verse 33, quoting Psalm two. Um, I've raised up Jesus from the dead. Psalm two predicts it. And also that he raised him up from the dead is predicted in Psalm 16. Do you see the difference in those two approaches? Uh, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So um, which, which do you think it is? So I think it's the correct one. Um, but let me just, <laughs> let me just go ahead and add in, um, the, I will give you the sure mercies of David um, uh, in um, verse 34. Right. Uh, so that's Isaiah 55, correct? And then the latter, then 35 is Psalm 16. Yeah, okay. So the, the quote from Isaiah 55, I think maybe helps to answer that. that this will be my, my view. Help, feel free to, to convince me otherwise. But in Isaiah 55, he says, incline your ear, verse 3, Come to me, here and your soul shall live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. And so the idea of that quote in context of Isaiah 53 is not just that he's raised from the dead, but that he's raised from the dead never to die again. It's an everlasting covenant. Okay. And so I'm going to take it that he's saying not only was he raised from the dead, Psalm 2, he was raised from the dead to never return to corruption because this is an everlasting covenant. Okay. Um, and, and then and then Psalm 16, I think, would just be an, an exclamation point on that. So let's go back to verse 33. What is he, is he, in verse 33, when it says he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, thou art my son, this day have I begotten you. Is he talking about the resurrection from the dead there, or is he talking about raising up Jesus as God raised Pharaoh up? For this cause I have raised you up that I might show you my power. 
the, the vocabulary is certainly different. Um, but what do you think? Well, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think you could make that. You could probably ask the same question from Hebrews one, uh, but I, I see it as as being a reference to the resurrection. Um, but but I'm, I may just be reading that too simply. I, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. All right. Uh, but in any event, he does clearly come to the point of Jesus' resurrection. And actually, he makes an argument very similar to the one Peter made on the day of Pentecost. In right. fact, both Peter there on the day of Pentecost and Paul here go to Psalm 16. And in fact, both make the point that David himself, who wrote Psalm 16 and and was speaking in the first person and, and at face value, taking at face value, you might think he was talking about himself. But both Peter and Paul make the point that um, where where uh, the one that verse thirty seven, yeah, thank you, verse thirty seven, uh, that the one that's talked about in Psalm sixteen did not see corruption. David did. It's interesting to me the way the way Peter says it in Acts two. He says, "Brethren, um, he, he both died and was buried, and his grave is with us to this day." which is a right. tactful way of saying he's been dead for a thousand years. His body has rotted, but it's yeah. Paul, not Peter who leaves tact aside and just says in verse 36, David, after he'd, after he had in his own generation served the counsel of God, fell asleep, was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. His body rotted in the grave, but they're both making yeah. the same point. David was not talking about himself when he talked about one who would be raised without seeing corruption. And uh, then of course, both Peter and Paul go on to affirm that Jesus is the one he's talking about. All right. Well, let's pick it up there. Um, so we get to verse 38, be it known unto you, therefore brethren, that through this man, through Jesus is proclaimed unto you remission of sins. And by him, everyone that believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. You know, as often as we go to some passage to show the blood of bulls and goats did not take away sin, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, that the law made nothing perfect. Uh, all the passages that we typically go to, I don't know that I ever remember to go to this passage where he just plainly says from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Doesn't get any clearer, does it? No, it doesn't. You know, Romans three, Paul preaches this. He preaches it in Galatians, but he is right here, stated in a Jewish synagogue. Can you imagine what a shock that would be? I mean, they've just yeah. sat through their uh, their Bible study, right? They're they're reading yeah. of yeah. the law and right. the prophets. Uh. Now, what's he? You know, he, he's using the law and the prophets now. You know, when, when they said, "Do you have any word of exhortation?" Uh, I'd like to know what it was that they were reading that, that day, you know, uh, is he like, Hey, well, you got that scroll open by the way. Um, well, it reminds me of when Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth and he picks up that scroll of Isaiah, uh, chapter, um, uh, is it, uh, it's in Luke four, but it's Isaiah 61, uh, that he picks up and he reads this thing about being this one who comes and brings you know peace to the poor and the captive and all that kind of thing yeah and he sits down and everyone's looking at him and he just goes today this has been fulfilled in your um you know right here with me and just thinking about the shock and awe that there would have been there and uh if i'm not mistaken they run him out 
after yeah, that. Yeah, they, well. they did. And here he gets his immediate the immediate response he gets is better. We know where this is going, but the very first reaction, interestingly, is not primarily a negative one, or at least Luke doesn't characterize it as such. In verse 42, um, as they went out, they besought that these words might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when yeah, the synagogue yeah, broke yeah. up, many of the Jews and the devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So he, get, he gets a, a fairly favorable response at the first. Mm -hmm. Which what happens. is a... Go ahead. Yeah, verse 44. The following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Guys, can you imagine when you guys go to preach this Sunday... And then the following Sunday, like the whole city is there to like hear what you have to say. Yeah. I can't imagine that. I don't know. Maybe, maybe Joe can. <laughs> but of course, in verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. And Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles. So this is what the Lord commanded us. I've made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So, yeah, the, everyone's there. But in, and I, I've never really thought through how this compares to the life of Jesus as well. Because ultimately, that's, that's what happens to Jesus is they end up getting jealous of the crowds that are following Jesus. And it's no longer about the truth. It's just about their own jealousy. What do you think about the jealousy? What's that rooted in? Popularity. Uh, I want, uh, yeah, I want for the, those people to be following them and listening to them as intently. I would think. I, I, I tell me if you, what you think about this. It's when the whole city, which would include not just Jews but Gentiles, are gathered together, and when the Jews saw the multitudes, they see these Gentiles coming. The Jews get jealous, possessive in the sense that, wait a minute, this Messiah thing is our deal. This kingdom oh. of God thing is our deal. Uh, wait a minute. You're going to get, no, you, we can't have Gentiles getting in, in here on this. And they're jealous in that sense. That, that, that could be. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I'd ever thought of it in those terms. So I, I need to uh, rethink that. Yeah, sure, I, sure. I hadn't thought of that. Um, Back up. I, I mean, that, that, that certainly follows the attitude for the Jews as we go on through, even Jewish Christians as we move on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Back up to, we skipped over verses 40 and 41, where Paul warned them. He said, Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken in the prophets. Behold, you despisers, and wonder and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you shall no wise believe if one declares it unto you. That's ultimately the response that he gets from the Jews in Antioch. Um, so he kind of given them the heads up about that. It is interesting when you think about once people start to see the impact that the gospel has, that's when they begin to have issues with it. Um, and how how often have yeah. we seen that in people's lives where yeah. it's kind of a, not a trivial thing, but just kind of a minor thing. Oh, well, that's cool. That's nice. But when it starts to have an impact, that's when people start to get unhappy with the word. Yeah, of one sort or another. When it starts having an impact where it's making demands on my life, changes that I need to make, that kind of thing. Um, making me look bad because I am not conforming to the gospel. So um, Habakkuk is not quoted a whole lot, right? I can tell you off the top of my head how many times it's quoted, but I can look it up real quick. 
Um, is, well, I mean, uh, we, you know, Habakkuk, the, we have like two four is quoted two five. Yeah. Just shall not live. Uh, just live by faith. Two, right. two four, I think. Yeah. Um, but having this quote from uh, Habakkuk one uh, five here uh, just seems like uh, I, I guess maybe this is just my my wish or whatever. But when they were reading the law and the prophets today must have been Habakkuk day. Um, huh. uh, and uh, but it's so fitting, but but kind of a twist, right? Um, because what was it that Habakkuk was was wishing for? You know, uh, in, back in verses two through uh, through four, um, uh, talking about the the wickedness that is prevailing, and uh, so the Lord then responds, "Look upon the nations and watch; be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in you. Uh, I will work a work in your days, which you would not believe, though it were told you." For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and a hasty nation. But instead, what God's going to do here in the rejection of the Jews, uh, he's going to raise up the Gentiles and offering them salvation instead. Mm. So it seems, at least to me, it seems like a little bit of a plot twist from, uh, you know, they're going to be rejected. So God's going to, uh, you know, they're going to reject the law, the words of God. God's going to reject them. Instead of the nations coming against them and destroying them, maybe he's referring to AD 70. I think we're well out of that region. Um, you know, we're looking at Southern Galatia now. Um, but it's, it seems like instead of the Gentiles destroying the Jews, is the Gentiles are getting to receive the gospel instead. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Maybe that doesn't make any sense, but it does to me. Just, just, it's, Technical, but it's interesting when you said Habakkuk doesn't get quoted much. It's quoted four times in the New Testament, and there are three allusions to it, and that's all yeah. in the whole New Testament for Habakkuk. Okay, and, and, and uh, one, one of them is just through uh, through that one verse. You get about two or three of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, so verse forty six. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said it was necessary that the word of God should be first spoken to you, seeing you thrust it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. But so has the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set you for a light of the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation unto the uttermost part of the earth. I'm quoting from Isaiah 49 there. And as the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. So remember, there's a lot of people, the people from all, the whole cities come out here, including Gentiles. And the Gentiles hear this. Hey, they're, they're thrilled with this. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And so let's talk about that for just a little bit. Uh, several things to note there. Of course, one of the things that comes up is what this means. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Um, you might have some thoughts there. What do you want to notice? Well, I think in context, uh, it has to be understood along with verse 46, where he says that the Jews had judged themselves unworthy of the everlasting life. You know, it's not that God had said, you know, any, many, mighty, these people are saved, these people aren't, predestination concept, modern, modern day predestination concept. Uh, but these people chose, we, we, we don't want eternal life, we don't, we don't want this. And in connection with verse 47, where he quotes from the Old Testament scriptures, where God had said through the prophet Isaiah that Israel would be a light for the Gentiles um, for salvation to the uttermost part of the earth. So God had arranged, order, set in place a salvation for the Gentiles. Um, so, I, yeah, I like, like your suggestion that we just, just look at the context. What's he just been talking about? 
Well, and also in, in the very beginning, Luke chooses to say that Paul boldly replied, you know, these things. I mean, Paul was quick to say this, and I don't know how quick I would be to say something like this. I think I'd be a little nervous, but Paul is so confident. He's like, no, you guys have rejected it. Yeah. This is a choice you've made, so I can boldly say, I'm done, I'm moving on. It strikes me that way too. Second Sabbath. First Sabbath, he got a warm reception, speaks the second Sabbath, and concludes, you guys have rejected it. I'm moving on. Um, that is interesting. And and so this quote from Isaiah 42, I'm curious how you all see this. Is Isaiah 42 speaking to the nation of Israel, or is it speaking simply regarding Jesus? So I thought it was Isaiah 49. Is it, it is. Isaiah 42? 42.6. Do I have the wrong one? Um, I, I'm thinking of the light to the Gentiles. You're uh, the first part of that. Uh, wow. There, well, there, there might just be two places. That, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. 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 The fuller, the fuller quote. I think you're right. Yeah. No, that's fair. Yeah. yeah no, you're right, though. Isaiah 42.6. I am the but, Lord. I've called you for a righteous purpose. And I will hold you by your hand. I will watch over you. I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations. Yeah. And then you get the same thing in Isaiah 49 and verse 6. Uh, but, but you're right. It which, looks like he's quoting from Isaiah 49 because of the, the but, latter. He, he's quoting that full verse there. But what was the question you were asking, though? What was the gist of the so, question? So, so it, and, and, and I guess I'd ask the same question maybe about both those passages then. Is yeah. this speaking to the Jews or is it speaking about Jesus? Is it talking about the nation of Israel? Or is it talking about Jesus that's supposed to be this light to the Gentiles? Okay, that's an interesting question. In Isaiah 60, in verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you, and nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now, I have always read that your light, meaning the light that's coming from you. And yet, I yep. guess you could read that there's a specific light that is going to be among you. Um, now, he does say the kings to the brightness of your rising. Um, it could be both, Joe, but I'm not. Tell me what you're thinking. So my thinking is, you know, going back earlier in, in Isaiah, uh, maybe from Isaiah 40 on, it seems to me that he's speaking to, regarding the nation of Israel, um, but he keeps calling them my servant. Mm -hmm. uh, Israel, my servant, Isaiah 41, 8, for example, and, uh, and 9 as well. Yeah. Um, and so seeing the nation, that's what they were supposed to be. The nation was supposed to be this light to the Gentiles. Right. They failed to do that. But the perfect Israelite, the servant, Jesus came to be the servant. Right. <coughs> he fulfilled that. Yeah. Um, and, and so he's he's the he's the ideal Israelite who actually fulfilled the things that God expressed desired to to happen uh, to the toward the Gentiles. Um, I think that's right. I, I th there is this contrast between Israel, the failed servant. Yeah. And and the Messiah coming, who will be the ideal servant? We do see that, and what you're saying fits right in with that. And and so to me, it, it, that that's not just an academic question mm -hmm. because then when we come to New Testament passages 
like in the Sermon on the Mount, like in Philippians 2, that tells us that we need to be lights in the world. You know, are we going to follow the nation of Israel or are we going to follow the ideal Israelite? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and recognizing I, the consequences if we don't. Am I, I guess I'm missing, I, I just haven't thought deeply enough about this being said, because in verse 47, I always took Paul as saying, for this is what the Lord commanded us, to be the light for the Gentiles, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> and it immediately reminds me of Acts 9, when Paul was called and he was told he was going to be this chosen instrument to take the name to the Gentiles, kings, and to the Israelites. So, anyways, I, I I hadn't thought more deeply about that, so I appreciate you guys bringing that up. Well, it almost seems like it's not an either-or, but an uh, inclusion of both of them. Yeah. So then, uh, verse um, 49 says, The word of the Lord was spread abroad throughout all the region, but the Jews urged on the devout women of honorable estate and the chief men of the city and stirred up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and cast them out of their borders. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came in unto Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You know, when Jesus was crucified, the Jews instigated uh, something. They they stirred up the Roman government, the Pilate, and to, to crucify Jesus. And at various times throughout uh, the book of Acts, we're going to see the Jews stirring up the, the crowd. In Thessalonica, the Jews stir up the crowd. And in fact, they even do so uh, by, by characterizing the Christians as people who are um, not following the laws of, of, the, of the culture at large. What, uh, yeah, verse 7. These all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, one Jesus. Well, where where did it get started? Am I wrong here? No, verse 4. Um, uh, verse 5. The Jews, being moved with jealousy, took unto them certain vile fellows of the rabble, and gathering a crowd, set the city on an uproar. And so you see this, the Jewish opposition, opposition working through Gentile sentiments to, to try to stop the spread of the gospel. All right. Does that get us through chapter 13? Well, what's the idea of shaking the dust off their feet? What's uh, in, in verse 51? Uh, any uh, great significance behind that? What's the Old Testament reference here? It, well, not just old. Well, I don't know if there's Old Testament. Joe might know, but I was just thinking about what Jesus said to the apostles about shaking the dust off their feet um, as a testimony against them. Uh, I guess I made that, that you're thinking of, Joe? reference in my mind. Yeah, the only one I was thinking of was where Jesus taught the uh, was it two ten um, uh, when he's sending out in the limited commission. Is yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. Yeah. So, yeah. Also, I'm pretty sure it's also in Mark's gospel. Uh, it may very well be probably Mark, what's, not 6, I forget now. Um, Mark 6, 11. Okay. Lucky yeah, guess. Mark, Mark. Um, Luke, 9, 5, Luke 10, 11. So it just, like, I'm always nervous about doing that sort of thing. You know, at what point, and that, that's the reason why I, I, I approach the subject, I think we understand what that means, you know, yeah. as far as, like, moving on, mm -hmm. you know. But, like, when do you make that decision? And, uh, you know, I, this one here seems I pretty think, clear. Uh, 
Yes. I, I think the key is a hardened heart. Um, when somebody's just, you know, wishy-washy and maybe going back and forth and they're just not sure. And so they kind of dismiss the Bible study just because they're in this in-between phase. That's one thing. But when you see a hardened heart, somebody that is truly going against what God is saying almost intentionally at this point, I think that's when this boldness comes in and you say, look, you're, you are doing very obviously what's contrary to what God wants. We've laid it out. And so it's time for me to move on. And so, I don't know. That's what I've thought about these things applying is when you when you see a very clear, hardened heart. Second Timothy four, two and three. Preach the word, be urgent in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure the sound doctrine. But having itching ears will heap to themselves teachers after their own lusts and will turn away their ears from the truth. Um, yeah, I as long as somebody is willing to listen I've been inclined to keep trying, but when somebody's no longer willing to listen and they choose to listen to something else instead, um, then don't give that which is holy to the dogs. Um, don't cast your pearls before swine. Good answers. Chapter 14, we go back to the book of Acts and let's pull our map back up on screen here and see if I can manage to share this. There we go, right there. And it says... Uh, I can't manage. It's not there. You don't think I can manage? You don't have confidence in me? Uh, Whoa, look at that. All right. Okay. So he's been in Antioch, and he's going to come to Iconium here. Um, and again, that's still going to be considered part of Southern Galatia. And so let's uh, let's take a look at the text. Uh, we can get into this. Let's start in chapter 14. Joe, why don't you read for us a little bit? Folks, we're not ignoring Chase in the reading here. Chase is struggling a little bit with an issue, and so uh, sinus issue or something there, coughing and so forth. So, so we're just letting him have a break. <laughs> yes. Okay, chapter 14, Joe. I uh, wanted to get us through the first uh, seven verses. Yeah. Now, it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews, part sided with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, citizens of Ly uh, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. All right, so very quickly from Iconium, moving on to Lystra and Derbe, you'll notice Lystra is a short distance from Iconium, and then he's going to go to Derby. But first of all, we're going to find out what happens in Lystra, and that's what's going to be described in Acts chapter 14, verses 8 uh, through 18. So let's Pick up that. Anything Anything we need to talk about uh, at Iconium? Well, I think maybe just recognizing quickly in verse 3, this is exactly what the Lord said was going to happen, right? That they were going to preach the word, and then it was going to be confirmed by the accompanying signs and wonders. Right. And uh, this is, it's almost like it's a quote or, you know, a reference to Mark 16, 20 um, uh, taking place there. Or over in Hebrews uh, 2, you have a description retrospectively of the word having that was spoken before having been confirmed by signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit and so on. 
Yeah. Chase, you were going to say something. It just is, it's a, it is almost like a startling thing to me when it, when it says in verse 2, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And you expect it to be like, oh, so they just left and went on. But verse three says, so they stayed there a long time and spoke boldly, <laughs> you know, and it's just, it's not what you expect from the apostles. They're putting their trust in the Lord, doing what he's asking. And, you know, there's some who are unbelieving, but then there are those who are believing and that's who they're focused on. And, and that's kind of the tip difficulty with that whole idea of shaking your dust off your feet. You know, yeah, it, it might've been pretty easy, you know, previously in Antioch, expelled from the region you don't, you don't have much choice there let's right. make it known okay we're going on to somebody else but here there's a great opposition you might think okay let's shake the dust off our feet no the opposition needs to be confronted on this in this situation yeah very good all right you know guys rather than starting in at verse eight and and talking about lystra we've, we've got less than a minute left i hate to get started into that and not finish it it's a great great story and so let's leave it for next week um lystra and we've already looked at the map, seeing Lystra's right there close. Um, and uh, pick it up there. Okay. All right. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us next week. Thanks, guys.